0: Spooky friends, I uh, apologize for the long delay in new episodes. Life has been a little intense the last several months uh, between moving, divorce stuff, and picking up hockey. Um, yes, yes, I have started learning the strong Wisconsin tradition of how to do a tough sport on a slippery surface to make it even tougher. <laughs> It's, it's been a wild ride and I will be happy to update people a little bit more after we get through, uh, today's episode. The subject for this episode is Peter Curtin. To those of you who recognize that name, you're probably wondering why I'm covering him on a Wisconsin related podcast because he's a German serial killer. I won't spoil this for you yet but there is actually a major wisconsin connection at the end so without further ado let's dig into it peter Curtin was born in germany on may 26 19 or er, sorry 1883 i have not had enough coffee yet he was the third of 13 children although two of his siblings died pretty early on in their lives his family lived in a one-bedroom apartment and his father routinely beat everyone in the family. Even worse, Peter's dad would often force the children to watch him and his wife have sex while he was drunk. This guy's a real piece of work. Um, In 1894, the father would also be found guilty of committing incest with his oldest daughter, who was aged 13 at the time. Peter's mother was able to use this as a basis for separation, and she moved from... um, Mullum Rhein. I'm not German, I'm sorry, to Dusseldorf. Throughout Peter's childhood, he endured a number of other hardships that really set him on the path to becoming a serial killer. Because of his father's abuse, Peter's academic performance often suffered. He would run away frequently or try to stay at school as long as possible, avoiding returning home something that a number of us who have been in abusive households do. Um, He learned how to commit some petty crimes after befriending some criminals when he would try to run away in order to keep himself fed. At the age of nine, Peter claims he committed his first murder. He pushed a school friend into the water, knowing that the kid couldn't swim. Another jumped in to try to save the first And Peter claims that he held both of their heads underwater, drowning them. Police wrote these off as accidental drownings. Um, But there is strong evidence to support the fact that he did probably kill them both. Um, He never was brought to trial or anything for that due to the lack of witnesses or evidence. At the age of 13, Peter had a girlfriend. They were pretty sexually active, but she was not interested in having, um, penis and vagina sex. So instead of just jerking it like the rest of the world would probably do, Peter resorted to bestiality. That's a, that's a natural thing, right? Mm. Uh, soon he found he couldn't orgasm without stabbing the animals during the act. He swore he stopped this after being discovered doing this with a pig, but there's a lot of, uh, not necessarily evidence, but a lot of, it's too early. I don't have the words. Like people don't believe him. Of course, this followed the time when he befriended a local dog catcher who let him sidekick it up during work together they would abuse and murder the animals that they caught around this time he also tried to rape the sister who had already suffered sexual abuse at the hands of their father so not a great start um the fbi as they generally do with past serial killers uh created a profile of his criminal behavior later on and concluded that his compulsion to abuse and torture animals and then to commit arson um and later probably murder um really were a manifestation of his need to feel in control as a response to his uh, abusive upbringing so not really a surprising thing when we look at things like aces which are adverse childhood experience scores um basically you get like higher scores for going through abuse, for having a parent who's incarcerated, etc. And um, I'll put a link in the show notes for those of you who are interested in doing your own aces because it really is an interesting thing to look at. Um I have an incredibly high ACE score, <laughs> uh, which is probably why I'm interested in this stuff. But wouldn't commit murder. I don't know. In total, Curtin would serve 17 separate sentences of imprisonment between 1899 and his final arrest, the combined total of which equals 27 years of his life. Just absolutely fascinating the amount of damage this guy was able to do while being in and out of prison that long. He was first arrested in 1899 after stealing money from his boss and skipping town. He served a month. In November of that year, he claims to have committed his first adult murder. He picked up an 18-year-old girl and persuaded her to accompany him. He claims that he engaged in consensual sex with her before strangling her to death with his bare hands. In 1900, he would be arrested again for fraud and attempted murder of a young girl. He served four years in Derendorf, which is a borough of Dusseldorf. I don't know German geography, by the way. This is all stuff that I've pulled from the internet. Uh, So hopefully it's correct. Don't let me down, internets. Upon being released that time, he was drafted into the 98th Infantry Regiment of the German Army. He quickly defected uh, and began committing acts of arson. He was arrested on New Year's Eve Admitting to 24 counts of arson, he also stated at the time that he gained sexual excitement over the notion of possibly burning homeless people alive in these fires. Uh, He had also committed an attempted robbery during this time, too. The military tried him, since he was technically still a part of the military at this point, uh... He was imprisoned from 1905 to 1913 in Munster for the crimes. He refused to follow the rules and often found himself in solitary confinement. Uh, Being no surprise, he also began being introduced to more intense forms of torture and abuse during this imprisonment um, and actually started gaining sexual satisfaction from them. There's a very interesting thing that happens in the brain when you endure abuse, especially from a parent or a loved one, for a very long time. Um, Your brain tries to figure out a way to protect itself. And so you start releasing endorphins um, during abuse to try to deal with the pain. This also means that you... um, start releasing oxytocin which is known as like the love chemical it's also the chemical they give to people who are pregnant uh to try to induce labor it's it's known as a like a parental bonding chemical right so it's it's really something that's very high when people give birth and helps to cement that relationship with their newborn baby um And hopefully, no surprise, that has a very scary added effect of, um, for many people, finding the abuse they're going through as love. Um, For others, it's, it's turned into sexual gratification, as it is for Curtin here. Um... But, but for many, you see it as, oh, well, this person loves me, so that's why they're doing this. And you start to justify um, the abusive issues that you're going through as some part of love. Um, again, this is something that your brain helps you do to try to make sense of what you're dealing with and to try to stay safe. But... Um, It definitely has some pretty awful long-term effects Um, and speaking as someone who's been through that it is very difficult to then find people that you can date or or anything like that where you're not always justifying their negative actions towards you as something done out of love it's There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, During this time, Peter also would think about, you know, while in solitary, performing this torture he experienced in the penal system towards women and often gained sexual satisfaction from this. The first murder that we know for sure he committed uh, was on May 25th, 1913. During the course of a burglary at a tavern in in his hometown, he encountered a nine-year-old girl named Christine Klein. She was asleep in her bed. He strangled her and slashed her twice across the throat with a pocket knife. And as he heard the blood dripping from her wounds, ejaculated. Just like spontaneously. And this is the thing that curtain became pretty known for. He was very fascinated with the sound of gushing blood um, as you'll see towards the end of our story. The following day he specifically returned to the tavern across the street um, so that he could listen to the locals' reactions to the child's murder. He later Recollected to investigators that he got this extreme sense of gratification from the disgust, repulsion, and outrage he had heard in the conversations. He would later visit her grave, too, and apparently would spontaneously ejaculate while handling the soil there. He was never caught for this crime. Uh, yeah, it's this is a wild ride, and this is just the beginning, so buckle up, friends. <laughs> Two months later again in the course of committing a burglary with the aid of a skeleton key he broke into a home in dusseldorf discovering a 17 year old girl named gertrude franken he strangled the girl and then ejaculated at the sight of blood spouting from her mouth again not caught for this after murdering her he was arrested for burglaries and arson Although he was originally sentenced to six years for that crime, he served an extra two due to being a shit. Uh, Generally, people are released on good behavior. He was held back for bad behavior. When he was released in April of 1921, he relocated to a city called Altenburg, where he initially lived with his sister. Uh, Through her, he met a woman who was three years older than him named Augustie Scharf. Um, She owned a sweet shop and was a former sex worker who had been previously convicted of shooting her fiancé and killing him. Two years later, the two of them got married. They regularly engaged in sex, but uh, Peter would later admit that he only was able to initiate sex with her um on their marriage night wedding night whatever brain um, by fantasizing about committing violence against somebody else after that night he only had sex with her at her invitation despite all that it sounds like this was a really good thing for him at first um he finally an- obtained regular employment. Like, he started working regularly. He became an active trades union official. Um, like, things were just really going well for him. He didn't really have any close friendships other than his wife. But um, again, given the amount of abuse he went through, it's not uncommon. Unfortunately, that did not last. Otherwise, we would not really be talking about him. In 1925, the couple moved back to Dusseldorf, and Peter began having a series of affairs. When his wife discovered these, both women involved in the affairs reported Peter to the police, saying that they were either seduced and threatened or raped. Um, Only the individual who cited seduction and threats had their claims pursued. Uh, Peter did serve six months in prison for this. His crimes just jumped up from there, though. Um, In 1989, he stalked an elderly woman and stabbed her repeatedly with scissors. Despite many of those wounds going down to the bone, uh, she survived. Five days later, he strangled a nine year old girl named Rosa until she was unconscious. He then stabbed her in the stomach, temple, genitals, and heart with a pair of scissors which was his, his choice of weapon at this time, um, spontaneously ejaculating as he knifed the child, and then towards the end, inserting his semen into her vagina with his fingers. Um, we're gonna unpack that in a minute here. He hid her body initially under like some leaves and brush and then returned later to set her on fire. Another five days later, he murdered a 45-year-old mechanic named Rudolf Scheer in the suburb of Flingen, Nord, stabbing him 20 times, particularly around the head, back, and eyes. It wasn't hard to tell, given the timeline and locale, that one person was responsible for these crimes. Um, They started investigating this as a serial killer, because he was. Now, going back to the issue of him inserting his semen into Rose's vagina with his fingers, um, one podcast that I listened to that talked about Peter Curtin actually talked about how um, in order to have a family, he would try to insert his semen into his wife without having sex with her, um, like using a turkey baster I don't know um i don't think there's a ton of evidence to suggest that but because uh, because i didn't find it um then again i looked at really cursory things pretty top level things to do this episode so i don't know um but if that is the case um that would explain you know kind of maybe why he did that It it doesn't really explain it. It gives an idea, I guess. Although Curtin attempted to strangle four women between March and July of 1929, um, he's not known to have killed any further victims until August 11th of that year. Um, That is when he raped, strangled, and repeatedly stabbed a young woman named Maria. She was on the dating scene, and he took her on a date, uh, lured her into a meadow, and uh, killed her there. He later admitted that she repeatedly begged him to spare her life. Um, he would alternate strangling her till she was unconscious, stabbing her, um, and just sitting on top of her, waiting for her to die. He was really worried that his wife would connect the blood stains. Um, on his clothes with Maria's murder so he buried her body in a cornfield and returned to the body several weeks later with the intention of nailing her decomposing remains to a tree in a mock crucifixion to just freak out people um the body parts were too heavy for him to do that so uh he would return regularly to her corpse um, to dig it up, to embrace it, caress it, lay beneath her remains, things like that. Um, and then finally, he had to just rebury the body and leave it. After this murder, he set a police, the police, a map to her remains um, and also thought he should switch things up a bit and so he changed from scissors, his current weapon of choice, to knife. Uh, Part of this was also, I think, to throw the police off of his scent um, and to try to make it look like these were murders done by multiple people. In September, he attempted to murder two people but failed. Um, And... Backing up to August, he randomly stabbed three people. They all lived and reported their experiences to police, but couldn't really say who did this. Three days later, he saw two sisters, aged 5 and 14, and murdered them both. He decided to suck the blood from their stab wounds, leading him to earn the nickname the Vampire of Dusseldorf. He wasn't content with that, so the next day, he approached a housemaid in her late 20s and propositioned her for sex. When she declined, he attempted to murder her. She survived, but couldn't provide details about her attacker at all. So, it's now September. He's tried to murder two people, but failed, and feels like his new weapon, the knife, is partially to blame. Um, It wasn't getting him the satisfaction he liked of the scissors, of being so close. Um, And it clearly was leading him to not actually murder people. Uh, So he switched to a more intense object, a hammer. Uh, He also began to travel more using train stops to commit his murders. At the end of September he met a 31-year-old girl named Ida at Dusseldorf Station. He asked her to accompany him to a cafe and then for a walk near the river. He repeatedly struck her about the head with a hammer, both before and after raping her. On October 11th, he met a 22-year-old girl named Elizabeth outside a theater. She agreed to accompany him for a drink at a cafe, and then they took the train to Grafenburg, So they could walk along the river. And he struck her once across the right temple with a hammer. And then raped her. Um, He left her for dead. And she was found in the early hours the next morning. But never woke up from the coma she was in. Um, He hammered her temples pretty intensely. So it's not surprising given the, the temple is a very sensitive spot and an easy way to kill somebody. On the 25th of October, he attacked two women with a hammer, both survived. But in the second instance, it was only because his hammer broke while attacking her, that's how intense this person is, is he is killing people with hammers and hitting them so hard. He breaks his hammer, um, on the 7th of November. He meets a five-year-old girl named Gertrude. He brings her with him to a section of kind of like empty houses. He seizes her by the throat and strangles her and then stabs her once in the left temple with a pair of scissors. When she collapsed to the ground without a sound, he continued stabbing her an additional 34 times between her temple and her chest and left her body in a pile of plants against a factory wall. Her death was the final fatal attack that he committed, but he did engage in a, in a series of non-fatal hammer attacks and attempted strangulations between February and May in 1930. Um, in all, he maimed 10 victims during these assaults. They all survived and many were able to describe their attacker to police. This is clearly known as the time he got real sloppy (laughs) on the 14th of May, 1930, an unknown man approached a 20 year old woman named Maria at Dusseldorf station. They discovered that she had traveled to Dusseldorf from Colm in search of lodgings and employment and offered to direct her to a local hostel. She agreed to follow the man, but became apprehensive when he attempted to lead her through a scarcely populated park. They began to argue, and another man approached them, asking her if she was being pestered by her companion. When she said, yeah, this guy's freaking me out, the first individual, who is still this unknown man, just walked away. Of course, Peter Curtin was the person that had walked up to see if she was okay. So this does not end super well for Maria. He invited her to his apartment to eat and drink. uh, Before she clearly had decided that he was interested in sex with her and she was not. He calmly agreed to offer her to a hotel then, and instead lured her into the Grafenberg woods. He seized her by the throat and attempted to strangle her as he raped her. When she began to scream, he would release his grasp on her throat uh, before allowing her to leave. She didn't report the assault to police, but described her ordeal in a letter to a friend, although she addressed the letter incorrectly. Because of that, the letter was opened at the post office by a clerk on the 19th of May. Upon reading the contents of the letter, the clerk forwarded it to the Dusseldorf police. And it was read by Chief Inspector Gannett, who deduced there was a slim chance Maria's assailant would be the Dusseldorf murderer. So he went and interviewed her, and she told him about the ordeal. Further divulging, one of the reasons Curtin had spared her was because she had falsely informed him she could not remember his address. She agreed to lead police to his house, and when the landlady let Maria inside the uh, room, then she confirmed to the chief inspector that this was correctly the address of her assailant, and the landlady confirmed to the chief inspector that Peter Curtin was the person who lived there. Although, uh, Peter was not at home when Maria and the chief inspector searched his property. He did spot the pair in the hallway and promptly booked it. He knew his identity was known to the police and suspected they had connected him to the other crimes. So he confessed to his wife, wife, sorry, um, that he had raped Maria and that because of his previous convictions, he could receive 15 years of penal labor. So his wife was like, okay, go, go take care of yourself. Uh, he found lodgings in another district of Dusseldorf and didn't return home until the 23rd of May. When he came back, he did confess to his wife that he was the vampire, vampire of Dusseldorf. Um, he urged his wife to collect the very substantial reward at this point offered for his capture. And so she contacted police the next day. Um, In the information she provided to detectives, she explained that although she had known her husband had been repeatedly imprisoned in the past, she was not aware of his culpability in any murders. She then added that her husband had confessed his involvement with the vampire of Dusseldorf murders And that he was willing to likewise confess to police. He was to meet her outside of a church later that day. um, Something that they had staged so that the police could capture him there. He was arrested at gunpoint. Um, Peter freely admitted his guilt in all the crimes that they had assigned to the vampire of Dusseldorf and then had further confessed to the unsolved murders we talked about at the beginning of Christine Klein and Gertrude Franken in 1913. In total, Peter admitted to 68 crimes, including 10 murders and 31 attempted murders. He didn't make any attempt to excuse away his crimes, but justified them based on what he saw as injustices he had endured throughout his life. He was adamant he didn't torture any of the child victims, um, but he did admit to investigators and psychiatrists that the actual sight of his victim's blood was sufficient to bring him to orgasm and that on occasion, if he experienced ejaculation in the act of strangling a woman, he would immediately become apologetic, apologetic to his victim, proclaiming, that's what love is all about. The fuck is up with this dude? Um. He further claimed to have drunk the blood from the throat of one victim, from the temple of another, and to have licked blood from a third victim's hands. In one of these instances, he drank so much blood from the neck wound um, and this is with the Maria that he killed, um, Maria Han, that he actually puked. He also admitted to having decapitated a swan in the spring of 1930 so that he could drink blood from the animal's neck and ejaculate it then. There's a lot of really interesting information about the various psychological studies done on him. Um, while he was alive, and also of his trial. I didn't feel it was something super relevant to cover here, especially because other podcasts have covered him. Um, so, you know, seek out more information if you're interested. I'll, I'll pop some links in the show notes, but, you know, you do you, boo. Uh, needless to say, though, he was convicted and sentenced to death. Um, he did try to appeal that to one person who was a a noted anti-capital punishment uh, human being. And the day he was sentenced to die, the um, appeal was officially denied. So he asked um, that day to write, a letters, write letters of apology to his victims' families and one to his wife. Um, and that was granted. So they, they allowed him to do that. Um, for his final meal, he had wiener schnitzel, a bottle of white wine and fried potatoes, and then asked for seconds, which they were like, sure. I mean, we're going to kill you anyway. Just eat more, I guess. At 6 a.m. on July 2nd, 1931, Peter was marched to a guillotine. So fun. It's a fun new way of <laughs> capital punishment we haven't covered yet, um, As someone who derived intense pleasure from gushing blood, he asked, Tell me, after my head is chopped off, will I still be able to hear, at least for a moment, the sound of my own blood gushing from the stump of my neck? That would be the pleasure to end all pleasures. He had no final words before uh, being beheaded, other than that creepy-ass sentence. So you're probably wondering... Okay, we've gotten through the entire story. Uh, Where's the Wisconsin connection? We have not gotten through the entire story, my friends. So after Peter was executed, scientists were keen to learn how he worked. They took his brain to study it in an effort to find what made him evil. Um, In order to do that, they actually bisected his brain. So they cut it in, or they bisected his face. So they cut it in half um, from a profile standpoint, so, like, down the nose and mouth, right, um, back to the back of the head, um, they did that to get to the brain, and then the head itself was just mummified, because I guess that's what we do now, um, there was a gentleman named Arne, Arnie Coward, great last name, um, he was a noted collector of strange things and owned a torture museum in Hawaii. He wound up with Peter's head following world war two. Um, he had acquired the famed Nuremberg torture collection in order to open up this museum. This is just an aside. Um, that collection has made international tours and actually went through the U S the first time just before the turn of the 20th century. So it's a pretty well-known collection of, of, torture items and and other things ripley entertainment aka ripley's believe it or not tried to buy this museum from coward um but the nuremberg collection itself as well as the other things coward had um were divided up after his death in 1989 and ripley's settled for some pieces um initially the third party seller won randall miller And then Edward Meyer, the VP of Exhibits and Archives at Ripley's, had no idea whose mummified head they were bargaining over in June 1989. Meyer just thought heads were cool and um, was interested in acquiring more mummified objects, so he thought this was a really great specimen. He said um, in an episode of Serial Killer Culture, that it doesn't it didn't have to have a story to be interesting to me visually this is a museum piece frankly he's right um the head is split down the middle so you can see the inner workings of the skull sans the brain of course teeth are still intact skin and hair are still intact um and the way it is hanging where it is placed um is like on a hook it's like the head's not not been pierced with the hook. It's just like set on a hook. I don't, it's hard to explain. Um, Meyer recalled that the curtain head, once he had received everything came with a magazine article depicting the crimes of Peter Curtin without having seen this ahead of time. Meyer could have no idea what the significance of this head was, but given that, Uh, Meyer has actually ranked Peter's head as one of the top five strange things they have in their collection across all of the Ripley's everything. (laughs) Um, The Ripley's believe it or not museum located in the Wisconsin Dells was slotted to open in May, 1990. And as the designers began to work on a display for the head, they designed a whole gallery around medical oddities for this location. There's been a slight change towards torture Um, so instead of displaying medical oddities, it's like all of this different torture stuff, but Meyer believes that Curtin's head is likely the only thing that has never moved or changed from that location, which is pretty impressive. Usually things change out every couple of years or so. And that head has been there 20, nope, like 30 years now coming up on. Um, as I usually do, <laughs> and hopefully what one of the reasons to enjoy this podcast, um, I need to talk about the problem with Ripley's, um, so in the episode of the web series, serial C- killer culture that I watched, um, it's episode one of season one on Amazon Prime, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes in case you're really interested in watching the shit show. Um, <laughs> Edward Meyer takes viewers through the Ripley's warehouse in Orlando, Florida. He does a little interview with them too, and he's quick to point out that there's a lot of tribal art and how important that stuff has been towards the organization. Um, Ripley himself, Meyer says, traveled to around 200 countries during his lifetime to collect the strange and unusual. He also makes assumptions about cannibalism and other practices that are seen as other to Western eyes. He's also incredibly proud of the nearly 100 shrunken heads the organization owns. Um, even using two pretty out-of-date racial comments for 2016 about heads. Despite this, Meyer considers himself to be an educator. He wants people to have come away learning something. Uh, and also shock value, but definitely learning something should be in there. In case you didn't hear it, I rolled my eyes real hard. Um. <laughs> The Ripley's organization, as fascinating as it can be, for younger people especially, is at its core a display of colonization, and of seeing those different from you as some sort of other and lesser. Noted exhibits, both current and past, display medical anomalies that resort to ableism to shock attendees. Meyer's racism aside, we also see racism instilled in a wonder over shrunken heads, tribal instruments, fertility statues, and other attractions. In the show notes, I've linked to a paper uh, from Sarah, I'm gonna butcher this last name, um, Hanbury, called A Spectacle of the Odd, Constructing Otherness in the Auditoriums of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Sarah explores these issues closely from ableism and racism to a lack of context in the displays and a lack of ethics in general. The otherness involved in cultural tourism, especially without proper context, harkens back to the days of sideshows. These generally remove personal agency, just like Ripley's does with displaying bodily remains, especially without express consent. Many pieces in their collection, whether th- their bodies or statues, etc., cetera, um, have been taken from indigenous people and are put up on display without any care for why these things are on display. The lack of context alone um, is incredibly disappointing, especially as someone who has been to this Ripley's location in the Dells. Um, it is not something I would ever go to again, frankly. Uh, seeing Peter's head was real fucked up. Seeing the multiple shrunken heads there was real fucked up, especially given the sensationalism with which Ripley's approaches this type of content. um, it's definitely something that I can tell why people enjoyed it in the in the early to mid-1900s. I can tell why, as a child, I thought it was interesting to watch, you know, the Dean Kane ripley show. <laughs> but, as an adult living in the time we're living in, it's real fucked up and it's gotta go, y'all. Um so I'll, I'll link to Sarah's paper as well. For those of you who are interested in delving more into this, um, it was her thesis. So it's definitely something that is long, but it's very detailed and very good. Um, something I was definitely geeking out a lot about last night. (laughs) As for the next episode, when is that coming out? Um, um, well, my goal is to bring the show back to every other week right now. Um, so you should see an episode two weeks from when this goes up. And I'm not sure what it's gonna be about yet. It may be another thing that has a tangential Wisconsin connection. It may be something really short. Um I haven't decided yet. But it is something I am looking at my giant list of things. If you want to suggest anything i've gotten some suggestions on topics in the past you're welcome to do that um pop over to the facebook page and make a suggestion there or you can shoot me an email i'll I'll put the links to both of those in the show notes so that you can find them too um now for the rest of my personal update uh since we have gotten through peter and his sordid crimes (laughs) um Yeah, I started playing hockey um, in the fall last year. Did not know how to skate. So I think the first practice, I was on my feet for about five minutes of an entire hour. Um, But I loved it, and I stuck with it, and um, learned how to play goalie, which is something I really love. Um, I miss it dearly right now. because with the pandemic um we obviously cut our season short and we should be having like our tournament in a couple of weeks which is not happening um and i just miss not only my friends that i've made um in the madison gay hockey league but also just the the physicality <laughs> It's not something that you can do by yourself in your apartment while you're locked down. It just doesn't work that way. Um, I definitely have picked up some rollerblades and I'm hoping to get out and at least do something with that. Um, While we're all kind of on lockdown here. But, uh, you know, just really... Missing all of that. Um, Hockey has been the most difficult thing I've ever learned in my entire life. And I I don't have any uh, qualms about stating I don't know what a lot of the on-ice positions do. I mean, I know what they do because I have been a fan of the Badgers women's team for several years now, but I don't know what to do when I'm in them. So like, (laughs) I know what they do, but I don't know what they do. Um, just a lot to keep in your brain with, I need to be on this side of the ice. I need to make sure I'm not, you know, offsides. I need to go for the puck. I need to do this. There's a lot, it's a lot to do and I can multitask to some point, but, uh, it's a a little much for me. At least right now. Uh, I'm hoping that with rollerblading and stuff like that, I can come back real strong for um, the next season. We're also hoping to have a, a team trans-friendly. So there's a a hockey team that's all trans folks. Actually makes up a couple of different teams, but um, they played against a Boston um, LGBTQ team in November um and it was like the first trans game right so um we were scheduled to have a friendly here the weekend the first weekend of April um which obviously isn't happening we're hoping to get that rescheduled which would be great um I was slated to be a team trans goalie so I'm like waiting (laughs) patiently (laughs) Um, I know that the pandemic has put everybody's lives on hold for sure, but, uh, it's interesting, um, as somebody who's never really been like super social and somebody who's never been like super physical (laughs) to, uh, get to a point where I'm missing both of those. It's very odd to me. Um, other life updates finished my divorce. I'm officially divorced. Um still working on being friends with my ex. Um so that's a nice thing. Um, when you've had someone in your life for thirteen years, you don't want it to suddenly be that they're not a part of your life anymore. So we're we're cordial and we hope the best for each other at least. Um I am I have started testosterone. Um I started in January and just upped my dose to once a week instead of every other week. It's still a really small dose. Um like literally point one millimeter milliliter. Millimeter? What the hell? <laughs> Length versus volume here, brain. Um <laughs> milliliters. So it's very small, but um, it's something that I have found helpful for me. Um, From a gender perspective, I am experiencing more what we could call gender euphoria. So days where you really feel at home in your body, which is not something that uh, I usually do. So it's been really, really nice to have that happen. Um, and I mean, the bonus is I'm not a million percent terrified to listen back to this podcast episode because I don't sound like a 13 year old girl. So, or at least I don't feel like I do anymore. Um, <laughs> The interesting part of that is I have always been the highest soprano in choir, right? Like in high school, um, I was one of two people who could hit the highest notes. And now when I listen to like Broadway songs that I would use to practice, um, you know, hitting those high notes stuff from Phantom of the Opera, for example, I can't. And it's interesting. The, the combination of like joy in not being able to, but also a little bit of loss. Um, but I'm definitely able to hit more of the phantom's notes. So I'm happy with that. I'll take it. (laughs) Um, I think those are the real big things that have happened the last few months. Um, my, my final guinea pig passed away in October. Um, so I am sans pets right now. Um also kind of in the middle of moving in with my partner. Um with with the social isolation and and physical distancing and all of that happening. Um neither of us I think we're in a place to isolate alone, plus we were spending all of our time together anyway. So, yeah, I've got all my setup over here at their place and really working to make it our place um while while we've got time to do that um yeah so to recap Peter Curtin's creepy as hell he weird don't be his friend (laughs) um Uh, next episode should be in a couple weeks here. And if you have any suggestions for episode topics, feel free to throw them at me. I am open to hearing whatever, um, you think would be fun. I'm also toying with the idea of doing something like a, like a Facebook live, a Facebook group. I don't know. Um, I don't know how many people are interested in that. How many people do Facebook? but um thought it would be kind of a fun thing to do. I enjoy some of the other like spooky podcast groups and um gives me i think a, a better chance con- to connect with everybody, which I can definitely appreciate. So, look forward for more coming down the pipeline here. Um and in the meantime, stay spooky you just listened to the spooky scanny podcast it's produced every two weeks by me kirsten schultz the intro outro music is from purple plant you can find show notes and more over at spookyscanny.podbean.com including a transcript in case you missed anything take a minute and rate and subscribe if you can you'll help more people see the show by rating and you won't miss a single episode if you subscribe and that's pretty dope. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash podcast. and you can email me anything you'd like me to know at podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, sleep tight and don't let the badgers bite.